everyone. Welcome to the Dissenting Gadfly podcast. I'm your host, Jesse, and today I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Tobin Shear. He's the director of African American Studies program at the University of Montana and a full professor of history. He conducts research into the history of race and religion in the United States, with particular emphasis on prayer, civil rights movement, and white identity. He recently was named a Montana University System Teaching Scholar by the Office of the Commissioner of Higher Education for developing high-impact teaching practices for student success and serving as an excellent model for others in higher education. He's also an author of such books as Entering the River, Healing Steps from White Privilege Towards Racial Reconciliation, Set Free, A Journey Towards Solidarity Against Racism, Daily Demonstrators, and Two Weeks Every Summer. He's also an incredible baker of pies for his students, and he's a good friend of mine. And today we have a conversation about systematic racism in America, and his depth of knowledge really comes through in this conversation. So I really enjoyed having this talk with him. I apologize for the audio in advance. Uh, this was our first podcast, so we were still kind of getting all the audio stuff taken care of. Um, and here on out, it should be much better going forward. So I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. Uh, I'm going to link some of his books below. Uh, I'm going to link his blog, Truth and Grace. Uh, and I'll give him some other ways that you guys can contact him or follow him on social media, as well as following some of the groups that he's involved with. All right, you guys, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Um, let me know what you think. So, recording now. Cool. Ready? Yep, absolutely. Awesome. Well, welcome. Thank you for doing this um, with us. This is actually going to be our first official released podcast, so you're going to cool. go down in history for that. Um, and I've been trying to talk with you for probably a couple months now. We've been talking about having a conversation about this. Um, racism and kind of I'm interested in how it affects our lives especially in communities like this where you know we don't have access to a lot of the information we don't see things the way that other people see them um and so yeah before we kind of get into that uh I know I, I give everybody a little bio on you but if you want to just maybe give a little bit more detail about kind of what you focus on and and where your head's at most of the time yeah so currently as you've probably already noted, I am the director of African American Studies at University of Montana. I'm actually entering my 13th year in that role, which I can hardly believe. But it's work I'm passionate about. I, I care deeply about not only African American history, but the broader conversations about race and racism that get to happen in the course of that study. Um, my research and writing these days focuses on the broad arena of race and religion. My current book that I'm just completing now is looking at the role of religious resources in social change movements. So looking at, for example, how civil rights movement activists used prayer in the midst of their protests, how South African anti-apartheid activists did the same sort of thing, how Gandhi used fasting, uh, the ways in which the Polish solidarity struggle used a host of religious resources, including this famous Black Madonna painting that they literally brought across the country. So that's the kind of things I look at. I've done a lot of writing around um, whiteness and white identity in addition to African-American history. My, my first academic book looked at the history of white and black Mennonites in the civil rights movement. A book prior to that, which was more oriented towards a broader religious um, audience, looked at issues of race and white privilege. I've co-authored co a book with an African-American woman and a Latinx woman who I still do a lot of work with. Um, and I guess the other thing to say is that what I do now in the academy inside the university builds on the work that I first did professionally working as an anti-racism educator and organizer for about 
15 years. And right now, in the midst of this moment where we are uh, working with issues of systemic racism in a pretty stunning way, I'm drawing on many of those skills I developed then to sort of bring them forward into the moment where we are right now. Oh, awesome. That is a lot of stuff. That's so yeah. cool. Um, so right away, I guess like the first thing that I would pick your brain on is I was questioning originally about recording this and putting it out because I was at first nervous about talking about this particular issue and having it be just two, basically two white guys sitting down and talking and not, not having um, anybody else here representing or speaking on their behalf. So is that like, I, I see a lot of people also that don't want to have this conversation. I think a lot of it is because of that. Like, are we allowed to talk about this stuff? Um, and I'm curious as to what your thoughts as being that you are a white man and you're yeah. the head of the African-American studies. Right. And right. No, it's absolutely the most important question to start off with, with the two of us talking on this topic. I mean, one of the things to note is that on the first day of every class that I teach, when I'm doing African-American history classes, I say to my students, I want you to know that I know I'm white. That's, there's no confusion there. There's always gonna be tension with me in the role that I fill as the director of African-American studies. And I invite my students to explore that tension with me. And we've had really productive conversations about things I can do in that role as a white guy and things that I can't do and how we can address that. So that's been a productive conversation over time. I think we would never wanna suggest that anyone should be having conversations all the time without having um, listened to, learned from, and be con conversing with uh, members of the BIPOC community, the Black, Indigenous, and people of color community. In particular in this moment, we need to be hearing directly and uh, unapologetically from the Black community. In that context, it's also, not instead of, but also really important for those of us who are white to be talking with other white people about the issue of racism and particularly about the issue of white supremacy and white privilege and the way that system of racism has been designed to serve us. Because if we don't learn how to be comfortable with that conversation, we're never going to be part of that change process. And we all have to be part of that change process in a country that has this history of deeply entrenched racism from which white people have benefited again and again and again for centuries. So I think what one of the things you and I can do, Jesse, here is perhaps model the way we can have a productive conversation as white people, even while recognizing how important that that's not the only conversation we have. We have to be having multiple conversations. This is one of them. It's not the only one. That's, I guess, the approach I bring to it. Awesome. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel about it, too. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, I just have an issue with people not being able to talk about things just in general. Um, with any idea. I think there's always kind of like who can and can't talk about this. Um, but yeah, this question of, you know, who can have the conversations just I've heard it so much over the past couple months. And it's just strange to see and I try to, you know, get people to talk with me about it as much as possible. I'm trying to learn. And I guess sometimes I'm concerned with am I saying the right thing because, you know, I'm, I'm only able to repeat the things that that I've heard that I've been that I've had experience with or that I, I, I've had the opportunity to listen to or whatever. So how do we go about making sure that people like me are educated enough on the subject to have a conversation like this or to at least like be able to give some kind of input that's worthwhile? Right. 
I mean, that's where I think it's so important that we are pursuing multiple avenues for, especially for us as white folks to get the information and to get the education that we need so we can become conversant and so we have something to contribute. I actually just, um, just last night posted a, a blog that I wrote on how to talk to white people about white supremacy. I'd been asked to, to sort of address that question by people of color that I'm in conversation with based on my experience of working in the area. And so I came up with nine different observations that I've noticed work well when I'm talking with other white people. I won't go through all nine, that would be boring, but I'll just say a couple of them. I mean, one thing I, that I, I, I no longer do, I no longer try to convince anybody of anything. It just, if I enter the conversation with another white person who's not convinced that racism is an issue or is very uncomfortable talking about white privilege or white power, that kind of thing, we're gonna have a non-starter if I come in and I'm gonna to try to convince that person to change their mind. All I wanna do when I enter, enter a conversation with another white person about racism is to be sure that the ideas that I have to share are understandable. And if they're understandable, they're gonna have their own power and their own salience, and they will or they won't convince the person of the, uh, anything they have to offer about their worldview. But if I enter it trying to convince them of something, it just never works out. So that's one of the principles. I also talk about, I no longer try to guilt white folks like myself into doing something different. I just have had no success at using sort of the approach of trying to get white people to feel guilty about being white. That just hasn't gone anywhere. I, I look for um, the things that I can appeal to, to help sort of open a door to conversation. So I talk a lot about integrity. If I'm talking with members of the religious community, I, I talk about the ways in which racism undermines religious values of, of inclusion and embrace. If I'm talking with people who are committed to the Republic as an ideal for this nation, I talk about the way racism undermines the integrity of, demo integrity of democracy. Um, if I'm talking with people who are concerned about their own sort of uh, self-presentation and identity in the world, white, white folks, I talk about the way in which racism undermines our integrity as individuals because it fools us into thinking that we have achieved all we've achieved simply by our abilities without understanding the ways in which we've been supported by the institutions around us. So that's another entryway. I, I try to also affirm anything I can in which someone's talk, in which they're talking about. I, I talk about my own struggles with dealing with my participation in white supremacy and, and the systems of white privilege around me. Um, and I also have worked really hard to develop some facility in talking about systemic racism, to be able to explain the ways in which racism operates in the criminal justice system, in the healthcare system, in the education system. And it helped because one of the biggest areas, biggest challenges that white people have, and I among them, is shifting the conversation to just talking about racism as a function of two individuals interacting with each other. The shift from the, in, the individual understanding and approach to racism to the institutional understanding and approach to racism is the most difficult paradigm shift that most white folks have to make 
after they've become convinced that racism actually exists. That's, that's a struggle in and of itself at some points, although not nearly as much as it was when I started doing this work 30 years ago. Um, at that point, I often had to spend a lot of time trying to convince other white folks or just making my ideas understandable. At that point, I was still trying to convince them of things, but trying to make it understandable that racism wasn't just a function of the history books. It was with us, it was real, it was affecting BIPOC folks on a daily basis. And once I'd sort of gotten that through, then we could talk about shifting from this individual to this institutional understanding of racism. Um, and that's kind of the main, the main thing I want to focus on is going to be um, essentially like systematic racism, especially because people just, it, it seems to be so hard for people to understand Mm -hmm. The idea of systematic racism and so many people have a hard time admitting that it's an actual thing that happens. Um, but before we get into that, uh, you're originally talking about like how you approach conversation with people mm -hmm. as far as not guilting them and, and not trying to convince them of anything. What is good in your opinion? When do you decide like when a conversation needs to start with someone and when do you decide, okay, conversation probably needs to end right here. Right, yeah. Um, well, my experience is probably not the best to draw from on that because I'm so heavily identified with the issue of racism. Mm -hmm. Seek me out to have conversations. And that's fine. That's great. And anytime someone's approaching and I have the space and the bandwidth to talk with them, I, I will try to do so. Um, but I think some of the key factors in the discernment that you're talking about I mean, as long as someone is willing to engage in the conversation about the issue, I think that conversation is worth having. If there's a long-term organizing principle that you, you find the open doors to walk through, you don't try to bang your head against a brick wall. And that's a discernment point when, when you're sort of, you know, having these conversations. And it, it may be that there's gonna be times where you have to give the conversation a pause. I mean, particularly in family dynamics, that that can be an issue there as well. But in those settings, I have come to recognize two things. One is that relationships are really important. And as I'm having intense conversations, particularly, I wanna work hard as possible to remind myself of the humanity of the person I'm talking with. One of the weird dynamics that I've, I've done some writing about and, and speaking about more, more of late is that as more white people are becoming activated and willing to take risks and speak out on racism, one of the ways some white folks seem to be trying to establish their credentials as an anti-racist is to castigate and attack other white people. As if to say, look at what a great white person I am, I'm an ally, because look how hard I'm beating up other white people. I don't think that's appropriate. I want to try to maintain a human connection with another white person as a white person so that we can have the chance of having an ongoing conversation. That's one half of the equation. The other half of the equation is that I think we also need to be okay with conflict. And I will confess right out of the gate that there have been a number of relationships that I have lost over the decades over issues of racism because I couldn't maintain that human connection. And that it's, I mean, that's just being human too, right? Not everything's gonna work out like you wish it would, but there have been absolute times where the conflict has gotten so intense and so bad that the relationship got broken. Um, 
we we left a congregation here in Missoula over this very issue where the and I won't go all the details of it, but we challenged the congregation to address issues of racism. Ultimately, the leadership of that congregation backed away from the opportunity and it it as much as we try to maintain positive relationship, we end up leaving that congregation. We still have connection with the leadership there. They're, they're uh, neighbors of ours in, in where we live, but um, there, there was a breakage there. And that's also part of the story and it's a part of my story. But I know, I nonetheless affirm those principles of in the midst of having those conversations, maintain the human connection and doing our best to be okay with conflict. But that's going to be part of it. That's because this stuff is tied to our identities. Um, that's another conversational path we could pursue, but um, that's one of the reasons why it's so threatening and, and brings so much emotional freight for white folks to talk about this is because ultimately we're, we, many of us feel that our identities are being challenged when we open up a conversation about racism. Yeah, um, have you ever found yourself in a position where you had to create um, a conversation with someone that you maybe didn't know because of things that they were saying in an area that you were in, in like a group conversation? Have you ever felt the need to? Yep. How do you go about doing something like that? So I'll, I'll use one anecdote. It's, it's not exactly like you describe it, probably as close as any that I have to, to describe at the moment. Um, my wife and I were at a large family reunion from one of her sides of the family. I note that only because I was somewhat of an outsider. It was very large, 100, 120, 130 people were present in the room. And one of, I mean, these are people I really didn't know that well. There would have been some in there I knew, but it was a big family gathering. And there was a skit night, right? This is what these, you know, what people do when they get together they, they don't know what else to do with themselves at any rate one of the family units did this skit in which they were presented it was all white it was a white family and one of them was taking the part of a black man in, and presenting him in this horribly stereotypical way egregiously racist yeah well our sons were really young at that point and I had made the commitment, and Cheryl and I made, we both made the commitment to each other that we wouldn't let racist jokes or stereotypes go unchallenged in front of our children. That we, that's a commitment we we're gonna make. So I just come off this huge national gathering. I'd been doing all the speaking, I was exhausted, but I walked out of the room because I didn't know what else to do at that moment. Cheryl came out with me and amidst tears, and we knew we had to go back in there and we had to confront the family. So we went back in and I asked for the mic and I challenged what just had happened. I tried to do as graciously as possible, but challenged us all because no one had said anything in the room. And we all knew that this was not appropriate. Um, well, let's just say that the rest of the family reunion for that weekend was a little bit awkward. <laughs> but there were also really good conversations that came out of that. And uh, I think probably the, our, our relations that did that event, that skit, learned from what had happened. There was initially a lot of, we didn't mean anything by it, sort of the intentional argument. But we, we were able to have a conversation about why that was inappropriate, why that should never have happened, and why we were committed to not 
modeling, that we were committed to modeling our children ways of not being silent in the face of that kind of racist action. So that's just one little anecdote. Um, many, many, many others, but that, that may yeah. be helpful in demonstrating some of the principles. That must have been a weird, just a strange type of feeling to go up and do that. That's awesome. <laughs> Were you raised around any type of like racism or anything? Is that, um, um, like, yeah. did you experience that from the bad, like the opposite side of it, you know? Oh, no, I, I really couldn't say that. Um, I mean, my own personal journey to the work that I do now has some roots in my family's story, although not, not consistently. When I was very young, my parents were leaders of a voluntary service unit. I'm from the Mennonite family, uh, the, the Mennonite religious tradition. And there's, it's not like the Church of Latter-day Saints where there's a requirement to do voluntary service, but there's a strong tradition of doing voluntary service. And my parents were leading a unit of predominantly white Mennonites who were working in an inner city neighborhood in Cleveland where I was very young. And I mean, among other things that happened there is Martin Luther King Jr. came and my dad got to meet him. So that was really cool. Wow. But there were also some tensions there where during some of the rebellions that were happening in around 66, 67, um, the unit was damaged by fire. The, the building they lived in as part of the rebellions that were happening to you know, respond to systemic racism. And my parents would tell stories. I was most of your listeners won't be able to see me, but I'm very bald and very gray <laughs> at this point. But I was once blonde. Oh, wow. <laughs> blonde boy. And my mother would tell the story of the ways in which black children in the neighborhood would come up and touch my hair because they'd never been around a white child before. And that's a very fraught story because on the one hand, it speaks to the, the continuing patterns of segregation in this country most children, uh, this gets to our conversation about systemic racism, that attend public schools, go to schools in which their race is a majority. Yeah. Uh, public schools that are integrated, other than in very peripheral ways, are very rare. And has everything to do with the patterns of real estate, um, and I could talk about the whole history of how that's been racialized and, and designed intentionally to protect white communities. But at any rate, that, that's part of what that little anecdote sort of points to, right, is that, that, that segregation that it continues. Yeah. But it also points, it rather poignantly and problematically, to the history of hair and how that has been connected to race. Because we have many, many stories of the inappropriate ways in which, for example, white folks will go up to adults who are members of the, the, the black community, for instance, and touch their hair without permission. That's, it, it speaks to this whole <laughs> idea of the objectification and the exotification that has happened consistently on the part of the white community towards the black community. And so, you know, I would talk, as I became adult, I would talk with mom about that story and say, well, you know, we, it's not a parallel. For those children to have touched my hair is not the same thing as for white folks to touch the hair of a, of a black child or a black adult, simply because of the power imbalances that historically been part of our country and the way in which black hair has been denigrated, has been devalued 
and exoticize all of those things. I mean, up to and including very recently regulations in the military. I was just about to say that my whole time serving, that was a major issue that we would talk about with chain of command all the time. The idea that African-American, specifically African-American females, because those hair regulations were the most strict, basically essentially criminalized in, in, in exactly. military code having any form of like natural hair and had to make these very, very specific rules on the particular way that they had to present their hair in order for it to be professional. And that if the hair was anything else, it would be less than you could get legitimate trouble for having a hair cell that wasn't within that realm. And it's, it's crazy. That's a perfect example of systemic racism, right? That yeah. this is institutionalized. It's based on the establishing white norms and standards as the model by which all others are judged. And you know, actually criminalizing someone for wearing their hair the way that they were born with. Yeah. That's screwed up. Yeah, it's <laughs> That's insane. racism. racism. <laughs> well, I guess that's a good segue into the main topic of systematic racism. Um, and I have, I guess, a lot. This is a huge, a huge subject. Um, so I guess initially we could start by maybe if you had like a sentence or two, just a, an overview of, in your opinion, like the definition of systematic racism, and then we can kind of talk about um, like more specifics and stuff like that. So I will attempt to define and describe racism as it is experienced and borne out in the context of the United States. This is different than the way it's experienced and carried out in other national and regional contexts, but given the history and the present reality of what happens in the US, systemic racism is the provision of power, control, access and privilege to those who are perceived to be white for the benefit of white society and white individuals as mediated through the institutions that constitute our society. So what are the institutions? Well, let's, what are the systems? Well, the systems are things like the educational system, the military, law enforcement, healthcare, transportation, economics, housing, et cetera. We've got, we could name very specifically the systems that constitute our nation. And then there are institutions in those systems. And the argument that, that my colleagues and I make is that when those systems were being set up within the context of the United States, it was done at a time in which only white people were considered to be human. Yeah. This was, we could trace every major system, were all in place when African Americans were, at least enslaved, and there were very few free people of color, were considered three-fifths of an individual. Native Americans were not counted, and in most, for much of the time when these systems were being formed, members of the Asian American community, it was illegal for them to be naturalized as U.S. citizens. Up until 19, I don't know the exact date, 1920s, in order to become naturalized as a U.S. citizen, so someone who comes to the country wants to be naturalized, you, by law, had to be white according to a series of U.S. Supreme Court decisions. Ian, uh, Henry Lopez um, documents this in his book, White by Law. And it was up until 1950s that that continued to be carried out. So that gives us, I mean, there's so much more we could say about that history, but those systems are put in place for the intention 
of serving the white community. It takes many, many different ways. We already named one, right, With, in terms of the military. That would be one very minuscule expression of that larger systemic reality in which those systems and institutions are serving white people in white society exclusively for the benefit of white people and for main, making us feel comfortable, safe, and at home. And it's crazy, just like when you were going over the list of what these institutions are or what these systems are, it affects every part of your life. Like every single one of those systems is a, a, just a small part of your everyday life. And so when we talk about systemic, systemic racism with people, it's like, you got to understand, like this is affecting every part of everything, like 24 hours a day that we don't, we can't possibly understand that because our whole life is on the other side of that system. You know, it's set up so that we can be comfortable and all this stuff. The, the evidence, I mean, there's so much more evidence we could give, but experientially, the evidence for those of us who are white that the system was set up to serve us is, as Robert Terry notes, to be white in America is not to have to think about it. I, I argue that that is the fundamental white privilege and is a function of those systems serving us so well. Now, we will note that in moments of crisis, that can shift temporarily, where those of us who are white feel like we have to think about being white, but systematically, we don't really have to. The systems aren't sent out so that, and, and I, I think an important distinction to make here is that by making these arguments about systems serving white people in no way suggests that bad things don't happen to white people. Absolutely bad things happen to white people, that white people can experience prejudice, they can experience violence. I mean, we have to bring gender in the conversation. We have to bring issues of sexual orientation and sexual identity into the, into the conversation. We have to bring class into the ableism. So many other ways in which people who are identifying as white can still experience oppression in some form. Absolutely. The literature around intersectionality, of recognizing the ways in which these multiple forms are dishing out oppression and dishing out privilege simultaneously is part of the complexity of the problem. But what we can say in the midst of that also is that white people aren't experiencing that kind of oppression because we're white in the way that black people are experiencing, for example, that kind of expressed, uh, oppression because they're black or because they are Native American or because they are Asian American or because they're Pacific Islander or because they're Latinx. I mean, that's a, a fundamental difference in the way racism operates in our society. Yeah, ours is basically just because we're poor and that would be the majority of like where that comes from. But we have no, even, and in, in I say that because I, it seems like sometimes I just want to sh tell people, it's just like, you know, you, it's still not the, it's not quite the same thing because more often than not, your people that look like me are being oppressed. It's more of a class thing yeah, versus, absolutely. you know, and so with that type of, it's impossible to even feel like you can understand what it's like to be the reason why you're being oppressed, be the thing that you just happen to be born into. You know what I mean? Right. There's no way to wrap your head around that unless you experience it. And most of us don't experience that even right. in oppressive times. One of my colleagues talks about, we, we don't want to get into the um, oppression Olympics right. where we're, we're trying to make a case for which oppression is most damaging 
that that just isn't, isn't going to help anybody. In fact, we have a lot of history in which cross-class alliances have been destroyed deliberately by those in power by interjecting race into the conversation, essentially pitting white, poor white people against poor people of color. Lots of examples of that. One that I use in my classes all the time is Bacon's Rebellion. I think I have the date correct of 1676 in Virginia, where there was a group of indentured servants, these would have been Europeans, been white people, found common cause with Native Americans and escaped slaves, and they had a rebellion against the landed gentry, the, the white Virginians, and it was quelled. They had to bring in the governor. It was, a, it was obviously a colony, not a state at that point, but had to bring in forces. They quelled the rebellion. But in the aftermath, we also have historical evidence that the landed gentry, the upper class whites, deliberately began to acknowledge the poor white people as having common racial identity. Not that they changed their class position, but they began to what um, W.B. Du Bois called the internal um, benefits of being white. So getting which one of my colleagues refers to as the baubles and beads of privilege, the, the frippery, the, the invaluable object of whiteness, but not really changing their class alliance, their class status, what they might be able to do if they found that cross-class alliance. Um, it's this, the, the phrase that Du Bois used was the wages of whiteness, the psychological idea of superiority without changing the class reality. And we see that being played out in the present in many very disturbing ways as well, right even through to today, that, those, that same sort of lifting up this white amalgam, this idea of whiteness to oppress other people, but not really change poor white folks in the process, their, their class reality. So I guess if we don't, you know, we're not gonna play fresh Olympics. I think the big thing is that we need to, we need to just understand that the thing is happening. I guess it's not so much as which thing is worse, but this, we, we need to agree that this thing is happening and then we can talk about how to go about fixing it. And I've even been really impressed in our current moment where we are right now of the ways in which some other, bi uh, other people of color communities have said, this is the time we need to be paying attention to black lives right now. Native American community has said, we've got lots of stuff We've got to be dealing with it. But for right now, we got to be saying clearly and unequivocally Black Lives Matter. Full stop. We got to address that. We have to stop this killing. Um, NAACP is, has put, I think, that sort of articulation out there. Stop killing us. Just that that's got to be the baseline if, uh, for us to continue towards having any sort of possibility of actually living up to the democratic ideals that this country says it stands for. So with this uh, systemic racism stuff, we should probably talk a little bit about the history of it because I think that one of the big things that people have a hard time, especially people my age group and, and actually probably more specifically younger, I'm in, I'm in my 30s now, so we're talking about people in their late teens coming up through their 20s. They don't, it seems as if 
at least for the conversations that I've had, that they just don't understand the distance and time in which this goes back. And because of that, like how that massive amount of time of this thing really impacts the life of a person, like to be part of this type of oppression and have that be part of essentially your heritage for the last hundreds of years. You know what I mean? Um, Mm -hmm. And especially in regards to like our country today and the systems we have in place. So um, a little bit about the history of it is really some like big things that kind of influenced especially I guess we'll probably end up talking more about like law enforcement and probably a little bit about community issues um, inside of cities and stuff. Yeah, there's so many things to talk about there. Um, Let's just pick up three of them and I'll need you to help me remember what I've just said. I mean, I think maybe we could talk a little bit about reparations because that speaks to issues of intergenerational wealth and the concept of unjust enrichment. So sort of there's a, a cluster there around reparations, intergenerational wealth, and unjust enrichment. Um, I think in terms of making an example that could be easily understood, uh, we could talk a little bit about the formation of the suburbs and restrictive covenants, That's a, a, which really sort of gets to some of that systemic racism and the ways in which that has unfolded over time. And I think we could talk uh, briefly about some of the um, systemic racism involved in the healthcare field. And that'll get us into a conversation on implicit bias and some of the history of objectifying white norms and standards over against the experience of people of color. But, okay, help me remember those, yep. please. Got them written down. Let's start with um, reparations, unjust enrichment, and um, uh, what was the third one I said? Uh, um, unju- you just said rep- reparations, inherent wealth, and unjust inter- enrichment. Intergenerational wealth. And yeah, intergener- intergenerational wealth. This country has never fully addressed the history of slavery and the ways in which major institutions in this country have benefited f- on the backs of slave labor, of the enslavement of Africans. So several major um, lending houses. The enslavement of Africans in the United States was never just a Southern phenomenon. Northern companies were heavy investors in the cotton industry and in actual uh, exchange of human chattel in in the, uh, the enslavement process. And that network extended throughout the country. In the process, Institutions, colleges, universities, lending institutions, um, banks. Uh, we're, we're seeing uh, more and more evidence of uh, specific industries and companies that got their start and were able to be successful because of participating in that enslavement process, financially and otherwise. That leads us to the concept of unjust enrichment, which is this idea that someone can carry forward wealth based on unethical practice. I mean, slavery is our prime example. That's not just something that is once and done, but it also is then carried forward in intergenerational wealth, where we know statistically that white families, and again, there's exceptions, class enters into the conversation, but white families benefit from getting a more stable economic start due to that intergenerational wealth 
that families have been able to accrue and pass on due to the benefits of the systemic racism we've talked about, up to and including the ability to buy land, which was denied African-Americans, taken away from Native Americans, taken away from African-Americans, particularly black farmers in the South. That's a, another story we could talk about there. And by the over-direct intimidation, removal, and mass murder of African-American communities. Tulsa, Oklahoma, 1921, classic example. It was known as the Black Wall Street. It was literally bombed and strafed during a white-led um, a massacre of that community happened in Wilmington, Delaware. African-Americans were, were run out in mass. They lost their wealth in the process. They lost homes. They lost access to financial resources. That wasn't accidental. That's an example of unjust enrichment that leads to intergenerational wealth. And it's still, and what's crazy to me is when you talk about things like Tulsa, Oklahoma, and especially like Black Wall Street and what happened there, so most like people that I know don't even know what that is. Never even heard about it. They don't learn about it in school. It's, it's so obvious. Like <laughs> the idea that people suppress information in order to like keep things the way that they are to have these crazy instances. I mean, this really powerful place that they called black wall street and, and that, and the whole thing that happened there to not know about it, to not learn about that growing up in this country. is crazy to me. So the other piece of that opening conversation then is that we've not yet dealt with that past through a just and um, full payment of reparations in some form to the African-American community due to the legacy of slavery. So ta Coates has written a great piece in the Atlantic on reparations and explaining how it's, uh, why it's necessary. He pulls apart the whole history of the uh, housing lending practices, which um, disadvantaged the African-American community, deliberately racially so. Um, that's, I would say, currently the best piece of writing we have. And there, have been a there has been a consistent effort on the part of certain Congress folk uh, in, the, in Washington to try to pass reparations legislation for years and years and years, but no traction yet. I wonder if this isn't the time to push that forward. There's lots of details to work out. Coates addresses some of them. There's different models we can pursue. I won't go into all the details there, but that's a conversation we have to have if we're gonna talk about truly adjust, um, addressing systemic racism. We have to talk about reparations. Why do you think that so many people are afraid to talk about reparations? When you bring up reparations to anybody in, a, in like a community like this, or at least, Kind of where we're at, we're in Missoula, Montana, so a very small, you know, mostly white place. People tend to like get fairly upset when you talk about reparations, and I think it's probably because they don't fully understand the idea of what reparations are or like how it could benefit, you know. Um, so could you like talk about that for a second, as like specifically or around like what we're talking about with reparations and why it would be important. Yeah, I mean, I think any time that we are talking about true systemic and institutional transformation, money has to be on the table. And given the things I've just described in terms of the unjust enrichment and the intergenerational wealth and the lack thereof, this is a way to address those realities. Mm -hmm. um, it has to be very carefully thought out. It has to be done with integrity. 
Um, there are, are challenging conversations to have about the means through which reparation payments would be made, whether it's collective, whether it's individual, how that would be appropriated. Those are very real, but they are not insurmountable. There are ways to have that conversation. And in terms of the reactivity to the conversation you just described, which I think accurately so, um, it, I think it's a matter of education. It's a matter of recognizing that racism isn't just a function of whether or not you wear a white hood, if you're a member of the KKK. It's a function of our daily reality as we've been talking about. And that, that transition is a tough one, as I mentioned earlier. But if we can make that transition, at least there's the chance that people may understand why that's so important. And we don't have to convince everybody. We have to convince a majority. That's what we need in order to move these kind of things forward. And we have examples of that. There, uh, Germany dealt with this in the aftermath of the Holocaust. Um, the, the other countries have dealt, uh, the, uh, New Zealand has begun to deal with these questions of reparations for the Maori community. There, there's other models out there that we can use, we can replicate, and it gives us a chance to actually move forward having addressed the history. The Sankofa movement um, that attempts to deal with the legacy of the Ma'afa, which is a Kiswahili word that means great tragedy or disaster, which is used to describe the Middle Passage when there was millions who died in the midst of the transatlantic slave trade, has recognized that the way forward is back through. We have to deal with that history. We never dealt with it. We have to deal with it financially. We have to deal with it psychically. We have to deal with it systemically. And until we've dealt with that history, we're not going to find the, the, even the possibility of developing a full, fair, and equitable, just society. We've got to deal with that past in order to have a promising future. That's the hardest thing, I think, for most people is accepting the fact that a thing that they're involved in is wrong. That doesn't mean that person is necessarily wrong, but it means that we can address the situation and figure out a way to go about fixing it. And I, people are so afraid to be like, yeah, this thing is wrong and I'm part of the thing that's wrong. And Mm, yep you got it jesse yeah that's just more conversation i guess people need to have and, <laughs> like i don't know that's a hard thing to, to figure out you just want to shake people and be like yo oh like, yeah for sure all right so we, we talked briefly about that first cluster the next cluster i talked about what that i, I brought up was issues of housing right yes formation of suburbs. so this is a fascinating one and highly disturbing the suburbs as we know it is the early 20th century phenomenon. The formation of those suburbs is highly racialized. Almost every suburb in the United States was built up with deeds sold that included something called a restrictive covenant. It was language that said this property may only, it takes different forms. One, the positive form, as it were, was this problem may only be sold to a member of the white race. The negative form, if you will, this problem, this property cannot be sold to a member of the black community or in other parts of the country, the Latinx community. Of course, the language was more offensive. Those restrictive covenants were in place, active and common, including here in Missoula, the neighborhood that I live in, the so-called Lewis and Clark neighborhood, had many restrictive covenants that were not only pointed against BIPOC community members, 
but also against members of the Jewish community. And anti-Semitism is also a story that we have to name and recognize that's tied up with the story of race as well. Those restrictive covenants were ultimately outlawed in 1948 in the Kramer Supreme Court decision, but it was never enforced until the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And even after that point, the real estate practices still frequently engaged in what's called steering, of steering white families into white neighborhoods and steering Black, Latinx, Native American families away from white communities. Cheryl and I, my, my partner and I, experienced this in person when we were moving from New Orleans up to a new job that I had to, to start an anti-racism program back in the early 1990s in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We were looking for a house. We wanted a house in a predominantly African-American and Puerto Rican and Dominican neighborhood in the city of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We wanted our sons to grow up in an environment in which they would be surrounded by BIPOC community members in a natural, normal, and frequent way. We didn't want them to grow up in a white enclave. As we approached a realtor who had been suggested to us and said, that is the neighborhood we want to live in, his first reaction was to say, oh, no, someone must have guided you in the wrong. You don't want to live there. Let's talk about, and then he starts pointing us to white communities, white neighborhoods. And he said, no, we were right the first time. We want to live there. And we ultimately did end up buying a house there and have a wonderful experience with our uh, living in that community. We were welcomed, affirmed, and included. There's also problematic parts of the story because even though we were moving into a community in which we were the numerical minority, we still had access to all kinds of white privilege. One of the stories I tell about this is the very day we were moving into that neighborhood, we had a bunch of friends come in, help schlep stuff around the house, et cetera, and I wanted to you know, reward them with some pizza. So I called up Pizza Hut, ordered the pizza. Of course, they heard a white guy on the phone, didn't think twice about where they were going to deliver it to. Then they call back five minutes later and say, oh, we don't deliver to that neighborhood. <laughs> and that, well, they picked the wrong white guy to talk to about this because then I was going after them and saying, no, this is unjust. You have to deliver to us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I ended up convincing them to deliver to our house. And the, of the many ironies of the story, one of them is that by the time they got it to us, because I'd been arguing with them on the phone for so long from the initial point of, deliver, of ordering, it was outside their guaranteed delivery <laughs> point, so we got the, the damn pizza free. But none of my neighbors who were African-American and uh, Puerto Rican and Dominican had ever been able to get the pizza folks to deliver to their homes. But this white guy moves in and he's able to do that. The privilege was there even in the midst of us becoming a numerical minority. So that just ought to say this stuff is, is highly complex, but the fact that we live in, most of us live in very racially homogeneous neighborhoods is not accidental. The history has set us up to live in those neighborhoods and has created the kind of environment where we don't have the opportunity for natural, normal, and frequent interaction across racial lines that itself is a part of the systemic reality of racism in our country today. Continues to be an issue, it's an ongoing issue. I'm, I'm gonna be giving a workshop next week 
Uh, no, actually, this one says tomorrow night. Um, so, uh, <laughs> Are you ready? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I am. Um, for a local board, and one of the things that they're asking me to speak to their board members about out of the gate is to answer the question about, well, we don't have a problem in Missoula. We don't have a race problem here. So, I mean, there's many ways I'm going to speak to that question, but one of the ways I'm going to speak to that question is to talk about this history of restrictive covenants and the fact that African Americans were in the past better represented in Missoula than they are now. There used to be a African Methodist Episcopal Church in town that was sustained by an African American community. Some folks associated with Fort Missoula, other folks associated with extraction industries. The fact that that church is no longer here is not accidental. It has to do with the visits from the KKK that they got, ostensibly to give that congregation money, but it was an act of intimidation. And because we, we strongly suspect the experience of racism that members of that community had in this town. And I, I wanna be clear that Missoula isn't just white. There is a strong right. and vibrant African-American community here. There are members of the Native American community here. There are members of the Latinx community here. There's members of the Asian American community. Now, demographically, it is not a large percentage that you see elsewhere in the country, but we can't, we don't want to make that community invisible either as we talk right. about this. Now, as far as just it's a little off topic, but exactly what you were saying, um, as far as all the people that are represented here in our small town, and me and my wife are talking about having kids eventually sometime in the future. Uh, cool. When school's all done, like 10 years down the road. Yeah, I gotcha. In my mind, it's like I love Missoula, but also it's it just doesn't feel like I've lived in other I've lived in Baltimore and in Memphis and in Jacksonville and Chesapeake, Virginia. And it doesn't seem as diverse here. There's not the experience of walking into minority owned businesses or having a lot of like, you know, styles of like different flavors of food and just like different events and places that you can go to experience all this. And like, is that still an issue here? Like, how do you go about bringing your kids up to not, you know, to see things the right way, but in a community where it's really hard to see everything? Yeah, I, I have had multiple conversations with white parents of white children, with white parents who have adopted children of color, with white educators in our public school systems about how do we address this? And it's clearly not uh, easy. It, it takes a lot of intentionality. Um, it takes being proactive to find the spaces where there are, where diverse communities are gathering and to find ways to connect with them that are authentic and aren't, aren't um, objectifying or marginalizing those communities and to talk about it. I mean, that's one of the things that I think me in particular, and I'll say us as a couple, we've got amazing sons. Um, but I was going to say me in particular, I, it's despite the fact that I wasn't always the best parent. Cheryl's amazing. <laughs> I haven't always been all that great. But that said, one of the things I think we did get right is we talked about race a lot with our boys. So another anecdote, kindergarten. Both our boys were one of two or three white kids in a predominantly African-American and also Latinx student body. Lots of stories to tell from that, but one of the stories is that Zach comes home, our younger son, when he was in kindergarten and talked about having learned that I was for Indian, E was for elephant, 
K was for kangaroo, I was for Indian. And we talk about it and say, you know, this is a problem. It first of all makes it seem like Native Americans aren't with us anymore. Secondly, it makes Native Americans into an object like a kangaroo or an elephant. And the representations on the materials to teach the kids the letter I were highly stereotypical. So we sat down as a family and we figured out what we were going to do. And we had a conversation with the teacher and they changed it. So what our boys learn then is not only that it's okay to talk about race, but that they can be part of making a change. And nothing makes me more proud than to see our sons being engaged in anti-racist activities in Chicago where they live now, that they're out there, they're talking about this stuff, they're on the streets, they're doing really important work um, in the midst of their vocation as well. And that, like I said, if I didn't get anything else right, we appear to have gotten at least that much right. And it's mostly has to do with Cheryl and with our sons being just awesome, awesome kids. They're not kids anymore, but yeah. anyhow. That's but awesome. It's, it's that, that's intentional, right? I mean, it's about that kind of intentionality that, that's required. Yeah. Um, so going back to these, uh, the way neighborhoods were set up. Um, right. Yep. I'm interested in how that started because I don't know a lot about um, that particular history of this whole subject. The only thing I, I've ever heard really about um, like neighborhood stuff was like directly after um, we freed the slaves that we would promise a bunch of land which would have helped people like incredibly to give them lands that let them have them start over. It was like 40 acres or something. And then uh, essentially the government basically took it back or didn't go through with that deal. Does that have anything to do with them being like, was it, how were these communities like set up to where they were, people were funneled into communities without having, you know, without having the option of going elsewhere? Yeah, you're, you're talking about two somewhat separate but very interconnected stories. So during actually the Civil War itself, there were two noted experiments where mem uh, formerly enslaved Africans were given 40 acres and a mule. And it, first of all, there was uh, parts of the, the, this coast, I think it's South Carolina, I don't have the exact location in my head, where very successfully African-Americans farmed lamb that had been abandoned by white plantation owners. There was also field order, I think it's 15, boy, this, I, should, I should know this specifically, in which... I believe it was General Sherman gives the order of 40 acres and a mule. So the, the reason we had the mules is because these were army mules, right? That could have been given. And then this would be land that would be taken away from former enslavers, totally legitimate. But then that was rescinded. There were numerous other attempts during reconstruction, which is the period of history from the end of the civil war in 1865 through 1877 when the federal government pulled out federal troops that were maintaining the reconstruction agenda. There were multiple attempts to put land into the hand of the formerly enslaved community. Almost every instance, the majority of the land was taken away through craft, graft, corruption, and legislation. So we're talking big government federal, takes federal it away. Even though um, more of like the army and stuff in other smaller localities were for it, 
maybe. And then it was just like um, someone way back, way high up that was like, nah. So the the legislation that was successful was largely on the part of Northern Democrats. I mean, excuse me, Northern Republicans. Mm-hmm. It was Southern Democrats who were against it and, and did their best to overturn that or eradicate it um, in terms of the distri- distribution of land. Now, that said, African-Americans in the South were able to hold on to some land and then birthed this black farming tradition, which was then eroded over time very intentionally by local forces. So there's great books that sort of go into the deep detail of how that agricultural system unfolded, how in many ways it was an attempt to replicate slavery that was undermined. I mean, that was, was uh, the, the efforts to undermine these kind of redistribution of land were enforced in depending upon the specific area of the South where you were also by the practice of lynching. This stuff is all tied together, right? So you had that sort of land appropriation process that had been in place. That was a little bit different than the channeling. It, it wasn't so much a channeling of white people how do I describe it? The formation of white suburbs was largely a function of protecting white people from exposure to black people or in other parts of the country, Native Americans or in other parts of the country, Latinx members. That was largely the impulse that these restrictive covenants were put in place to keep black folks and other BIPOC community members out and to protect white people in their white enclaves because of the racialized concept that BIPOC folks are a threat. That's a deeply ingrained in our conversations about race, that most of us who are white are socialized to associate members of the black community and members of the BIPOC community more broadly with threat and danger and white faces and white norms with safety and comfort. The research into implicit bias makes this absolutely clear. There's anyone can go online, look up Harvard, Harvard implicit bias test. You can take the test and you'll get a sense of your own subconscious associations of skin tone, facial features. And there's actually a whole host of other implicit bias tests you can take on gender, class, physical ability, et cetera. In terms of racialized implicit biases, we have multiple evidence showing the ways in which those associations are present. That was part of the driving engine also to maintain wealth for those white communities, but it's ultimately at a a psychological perspective, it's stemming from this idea that African-Americans are a threat, white people are safe. That shows up in law enforcement now as well. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't necessary. So it wasn't like, Hey, we built these communities. You guys go live here. It was more like, everybody else stay out and then just good luck wherever you end up. And then we see these communities because they're strong people need each other. And so these And and then in in most cities after the great migration, so you had 6 million African-Americans move from the South to the North and the West, uh, starting in and around 1917, some say 1915 through World War II. That migration brought African-Americans from the South to cities where they were channeled into particular parts of the, the city that were seen to be undesirable. 
Harlem and New York City, area known as Black Bottom in Detroit, um, areas of Los Angeles. Not accidental, again for a, a pattern of protecting white people from what they perceive to be an incoming threat. Not accidental, we can trace the real estate practices. And can you, can you speak at all on the effects of, of, of coming from an environment like that? I, I just had a conversation last week with someone and they were talking about opportunity and we were having this discussion about all, I was essentially saying like, no, everybody doesn't have the same opportunity. It's not necessarily about how hard you want it or how hard you're motivated to get out of whatever situation. Like the thing that you were raised in plays a massive role in what you're able to do and how you go about doing things. Um, can you speak on the impacts of, 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 of that? Because I think like that's a major thing, particularly with the people that I talk to around here, not understanding that because of the areas in which they grew up were completely different than, than some of these other areas. And, and it's hard to see that, like to see the effect, like how serious that effect has, especially on like young people as they're growing up. Yeah, it's, it's a tricky conversation to have because on the one hand, we don't wanna back away from the harsh reality that race and, and class combined can have on a given community. We've got a lot of evidence emerging around uh, issues of historical trauma. We're actually at the cellular level, communities are passing on trauma from these kind of effects of violence, of lack of access to opportunities, of, um, over, of violence towards communities, on and on and on. At the same time, we have to be careful not to define those, whether it's the Native American community, the African American community, the Asian American community, et cetera, not to define those communities simply by trauma or simply by oppression. Because even in the midst of that oppression, there are incredibly vibrant communities, rich cultural traditions that are, have been maintained in spite of that oppression. Brilliance of, is emerging, et cetera, et cetera, from those communities, absolutely. And not all black communities are poor, just like not all white communities are rich. We have to be, know that as well. It's complex. The patterns are there that it is more likely that a, someone who is black or Latinx or Native American in this community will be more likely to be pure, poor. And statistically, proportionally, white people will be less likely to be so. But we, we want to talk about the reality that that occurs, but not associate in our minds that every member of that community is therefore going to have had that same experience. Does that make sense? Yeah, mm -hmm. I probably was just generalizing too much and not, you know, just being like, hey. Well, you know, it's, it's complex. We, we have to, to learn how to talk about it in ways that acknowledge that complexity. So yeah. to learn here for all of us. Yeah. yeah, it's tricky because I, my only experience has been from, well, the, the most impactful experience has been when I was a, a, an army recruiter in Baltimore. Sure. And I worked with specifically schools. So the big thing that for me is massively, in, or a big massive issue and is super important to me is education in these yep, cities yep. and in these communities. And, and just, it's so obvious when you have, when you work in, in like a, a magnet school or a school in a predominantly white, predominantly wealthy neighborhood versus a predominantly community, a community of predominantly people of color or predominantly like poor people just to see the schools, the way that the schools operate and the, the type of access that they have in the schools and the opportunity for things in the schools. When we know, when, when essentially the cities 
has a budget that they can spend among whatever. And it's such a backward system because what they, they don't, this will be, be me going off on a rant because this makes me so mad. But what we see is that I would see these just children from these two different schools. Um, one school has everything like a, their building's not falling apart. Uh, B, they don't have to walk through a 12 foot high fence just to go through the door, which people might not think that's a big deal, but imagine being an eight year old kid and knowing you have to go through in a locked gate just to get into this building. Like it's really hard to learn when you're not feel when you don't feel safe. Right. They don't have, they don't have the budget. Like the schools legitimately get paid less based on test scores, tests, which we know are written generally to favor one community over another taught by teachers that don't want to teach in this community because they're not getting paid as much as if they taught at this school in buildings that are falling apart. And so we see people not being able to pass like the ASVAB or anything like that, just because they were born in a part of the city where they have to go to this particular school. And it's not even, it's not an option unless they get into this other school, which costs money. You know what I mean? You can't, which most people can't do anyway. Yep. Yeah, accident of birth. What yeah. follows from accident of birth is stunning. That's a that's a great example, um, and unfortunately, all too common in many of our major cities today. It's so hard to to get people to understand that. Like, how do you like to be able to say this and 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 try to get across a point to where they can fully understand the impact of something like that? versus just hearing it and not being able to understand that. Like, how do we, how do we get people, like, we don't have necessarily that issue in Missoula, Montana. You know what I mean? It's not the same as in some of these bigger cities. So how do we get people from up here to understand that type of impact, to realize that it starts with where people live, where it starts with where they went to school and what they have access to? All right, well, I mean, I do think we have some live parallels in the resources available to members of our reservation schools and tribal colleges yeah. as opposed to what happens in a city like Missoula. Um, I mean, there is even some disparity just within our local school system based on which school you go to, which isn't racialized, but it, there are reputations that I've learned over time that come with our different schools here. And that's just this microcosm of what we see nationally. So, I mean, I think talking about the Native American reality and the disparities that exist there is a one way to enter that conversation. Um, there's some good um, movies out there, of course, great books and articles. Um, and I, I think the question to ultimately ask someone who's just denying or not being willing to engage with this reality is to ask if they're willing to do some reading um, or at least watch a YouTube video. Yeah. Um, because the, the opportunities to educate ourselves are out there. In fact, the one thing that I've, I've unfortunately begun saying is a white person um, is not willing to recognize that racism is a contemporary reality today. I can only assume that that is an act of willful ignorance because we have so much visual factual and written evidence to show that this is the case, that the disparities in access to healthcare and access to education and access to jobs are not accidental, they're systemic, and we've shown them in multiple platforms. 
And if you are choosing not to believe, the other issues about sort of reparations, et cetera, aside, if you're not even willing to recognize that racism is an ongoing reality today, I can only assume that you've made a choice to remain ignorant about that fact. And that's harsh, but I don't know how else to talk about it at this point. Yeah, and so ignorance is not really an excuse anymore for people. I just didn't. Well, I don't think. I mean, and you know, or once one acknowledges that, the the access to information is so readily available that you you have to recognize the choice not to make yourself, um, uh, that to not allow yourself to be exposed to that kind of information. So. Yeah. But there's a third thing that I I want to talk about healthcare, right? That's what yep. I said. <laughs> Yeah, so this is a way that we can get into some quick conversations about assumptions and implicit biases. So healthcare is really interesting in this area. And there's of course just the basic economic access to healthcare that is, is again, people of color communities are more likely to be poor and therefore are more likely to have less access to good healthcare. There's the traditions of segregated health services where people of color in the South and some parts of the North couldn't access physically the same hospitals and doctor's offices that white people could. That's a part of that pattern. But then we also have the history of viewing African-Americans as objects of scientific research. So the famous Tuskegee studies that were done on African-Americans who were either um, had syphilis and was allowed to go untreated, or they were presented with the disease, and they were, and the scientists wanted to see what syphilis looked like uh, if allowed to go untreated. And so they did that to members of the African American community. There are similar stories of this. There's a story, we, we have lots of evidence that it's common practice in the Deep South in particular to get what was colloquially known as a Mississippi appendectomy which was actually sterilizing a black woman without her permission or sometimes even her knowledge. So go going in and saying, I'm gonna get, a I've got appendicitis. Okay, so the, the white doctor comes in, operates on the woman and says, oh, this is a black woman. I don't think she's gonna make good reproductive choices. Therefore, I'm gonna give her a hysterectomy also right now, no advance warning, no permission, sew her up and may not even tell her this is the case. Fannie That's crazy. Lou, Fannie Lou Hamer, a very well-known civil rights activist, worked with Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, had a hysterectomy when she was very pretty young um, without her knowledge. She ended up, uh, they ended, she and Pap, her husband, ended up adopting kids, but uh, the reason they couldn't have kids is because that's what was given to her. So that's an example, but then also, there's been a pattern that's we've now backed up by research on implicit bias in which white doctors assume that black patients in particular are okay feeling more pain and therefore they don't give them the same access to medications to deal with pain that white people do. There's also this spirometer, which is a breathing device that was calibrated. You can still find these devices out there that have black settings and white settings on the dials based on no credible science whatsoever, just on the assumption 
that African-Americans had different capacity for breathing. And there's all this, there's this junk science for a long time that was suggesting the reason that African-Americans didn't swim as much as white folks was because they had denser bones. And there's this theory about their ability to hold their breath. None of it had anything to do with biology. It was all about simple access to swimming facilities, which were racially segregated. Yeah. And people of color weren't allowed to swim. That's why there weren't as many black people swimming. My colleague, Jeff Wiltsey's uh, um, documented much of the whole history of swimming pools and his great history of swimming pools uh, that talks about that racial story as well. That's crazy. To just, so just all, even... Yeah, so all this to say is that we can also see the systemic manifestations of racism in our healthcare system through the kind of examples I've talked about down to just the doctor-patient engagement at that very basic level, let alone access to um, good jobs that bring you access to healthcare and the history of suspicion of healthcare providers, given the kind of things that have happened in the past. All of that is part of the, the conversation we need to have and the systemic change we need to be making at this time. Is there stuff like that still happening, like as far as medical supplies or like medical treatment where it is like so obviously not the right way to go about it? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I talked about the spirometer. Mm -hmm. There's I, that I recently, thing is still like a. I think that's still in place. Yeah, and so I don't think it's as common. Um, who I heard a podcast talking about diagnosis of was it? Hmm, I want to say uh, certain lung conditions that were highly racialized as well. Um, I mean, obviously there have been improvements in the medical community, but some of those underlying assumptions about in, being insensate to pain, that sort of thing, those are still practiced and common within the medical profession. So would we, obviously, like I'm not I'm a little stupid when it comes to this stuff, but I read an article saying that when we're testing this, uh, testing a new vaccine or what could be a new vaccine that they're specifically starting human trials in, a, in like three small African communities in Africa. Does that, is that at all like fall into that category as well? Like why is it specifically there? Is it are yeah, we still I, just? I don't know. I mean, it, it could be those populations often are assumed to be less valuable mm -hmm. than, um, than other populations uh, in, in the world community. I don't know the specifics of that story. It would not surprise me to hear that, that there had been choices made about that kind of community because of the, the general uh, assessment of their human worth um, and all the racial stuff that's tied up with that. But I, I need to know more about that particular story in order to speak about it with any kind of authority. Yeah, I'll try to find the link and send yeah. it to you at some yeah. point. Yeah. Cool. Um, so what do we like, how do we go about addressing the issue? So now we know there's this massive issue that is, we barely scratched the surface on, but is so in depth and has such a long history and affects every part of your daily life. Like we were talking about just going back to like this, the place where people live. And we were talking about when our CrossFit gym was deciding to de-affiliate from CrossFit. And I was having conversations with people about how certain communities don't even have access to get to certain like places 
or to be able to access these gyms or, you know, some communities don't necessarily have the public transportation to take them to where these places are like, so the access isn't really there. So we've clearly identified that these things are still happening today. So how do we start like changing that? Because it feels like for a lot of, from my perspective, um, there, it, we can't change what the select law, few lawmakers are doing that people that have all this money and run these businesses and make all these decisions. Like aside from rioting basically, which I'm not hundred percent opposed to, you know, like where do we start? Yeah. So it's a great question. We've talked about some efforts, for example, reparations is a yeah. big part of the answer. Um, the class that I'm teaching on dismantling racism from theory to practice that starts on Monday. Um, I spend three weeks working with the classroom there about exactly this question. How do we go about it? And my colleagues and I have developed some tools for addressing very specifically in institutions, not only what needs to change, but the sequence in when it needs to change in order to make it actually have a chance of lasting. So I'll give you for instance, Predominantly white institutions, if they are pressured into making changes, frequently start by saying, okay, how can we quick hire some BIPOC folks and bring them into, the, into our, you know, our, our institution? If that's the only thing you do, research shows, experience shows, those hires will not last. People will leave because of the racism in the institution. If it was in fact set up to serve white people, putting a person of color into that setting, there's gonna be problems and tensions. So we, we provide sort of an analytical grid to look at the full um, breadth of institutional life and note that there are sort of foundational things we need to change before we can get to those more obvious levels of personnel practice and program. But we need to be talking about these deeper issues of identity and the way institutions are structured, how they define constituency, how their mission and purpose are articulated. And if you can address that, then you've got a chance to change the institution. Changing institutions has a ripple effect to change the systems themselves. We absolutely, we, the agitation that's happening in the streets is a really important part of the process. It sets the agenda, it sets the direction. That needs to happen alongside this less glamorous, less obvious, but equally important work of changing predominantly white institutions so that they can be places that can actually support and equip their members, the people they serve, and others to change racism, to respond to racism, to no longer be acting in racist ways. So that's a piece of it, institutional transformation. And then there's the individual work we have to do as well, the kind of conversations we're having, the personal education that has to happen, the choices we make to respond to the racism, again, I'm speaking to white folks here, that we encounter in the course of our daily lives. How can we speak back to the overt expressions of racism how can we counter microaggressions, those small acts that aren't always as overt, but yet end up being alienated for pe people of color in predominantly white institutions? Those are choices we can make. There are choices we should make. There are choices ultimately we must make if we're going to see those kind of changes. So I'm always about the business of inviting people to take the next best step, to move forward to the next best place, to do so in a manner that has as much integrity as possible. It's not always gonna be perfect. We need to bring the best of ourselves, we need to bring our souls to the conversation, and we need to try to do this in a way that's actually gonna change the reality 
and not just say that we tried. And that's, that's what I, I want to get past. Get past the intentions, get to the point where we're actually making substantive changes in how we act as institutions. Yeah, which is, seems to be so hard for people for some reason. It's just so difficult. We're working at it. Um, I know you talked about the reparations as being like a major, uh, a major step or some, one of the main things that needs to happen. Right. My question is, is, given the climate of our society that we live in, that's such a, it seems like that's something that's going to get so much like pushback and everybody's going to use all the excuses of like, where do we come up with the money for all this, especially since, you know, we've been doing this whole pandemic thing and half the country feels as if like hand, like any form of anything they consider to be any type of handout is just not acceptable unless you, you know, you have to work 60 hours a week for everything you get. And that's about it. So a, like, where do we direct the conversation to get people started understanding reparations? And if that's a thing that we know is going to be really far off, like what's one thing that we can start doing now that we can see some, some actual change in the next upcoming generation, like our kids, you know? Um, a couple of things I'll say. One is I wrote an article about reparations probably about a quarter century ago in which I said dead in the water, never going to happen. In that 25 years, I've now seen at least some conversational space open up about reparations that I never thought would happen. We could think about the parallel about gay marriage in this country. 25 years ago, I don't think there were, there were very few people who thought that we'd see the kind of sea change we've seen here, where that's now accepted, it's now legal, it's now part and parcel as it should be, as it should have been a long time ago. There are things that have seemed impossible in the past that did change. I am hopeful that we could do this as well. So there's the, the legislative thing is gonna be a big struggle, no question. There also are some actions that individuals can take to at least do something symbolically that has some real effect right now. I'll give you a for instance of what my partner and I have chosen to do. So I've started a consulting business. I've been asked to do so by members of the BIPOC community to do trainings on anti-racism. That's generating some funds. 50% of all the money that we get through my speaking fees and through the trainings that I have developed through a third party platform, we are giving to black led organizations as a way to live out the principle that we're proposing. Now, that's a fairly easy decision for us to make because I'm salaried. I'm not dependent on the income from that business. In fact, we're not planning on really making any money from it. But we, we are planning on making money for uh, the Black-led organizations that we're funding. That's a personal reflection. It's, it's not reparations. I don't want to pretend it is. But it's at least a symbolic attempt to say this is one way we're going to try to reflect that principle even if we're not achieving it on the widespread systemic scale that we have to. But that's a step we're taking, just as a for instance. That's awesome. Um, what particular groups do you donate to? Like, what are you um, funding? The two groups we're currently donating for are Roots of Justice, which is a group that uh, emerged from Damascus Road, which is the anti-racism collective that an African-American woman and I started um, back in 1995. Now, I'm no longer on staff, I'm no longer associated with it, but close colleagues led by black folk 
we're um, we're giving some half of the money there and half to the Montana Racial Equity Project, uh, which we are we trust the leadership. I, I also have connections there. One of my former students is now a senior staff member there. Um, Judith Hellman is the director. I have very great confidence in her ability to help lead us forward. That's the kind of organization that we want to support as well. So those are the two right now. We we may over time. If we end up getting some more um, income, we may add some additional groups, but those are the two we're starting out with. Awesome, and I'll make sure that I link all those things and cool. so Great. people yeah. can look at them. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Thanks, Jesse. I mean, um, you, you could link three things, Roots of Justice, okay. um, Montana Racial Equity Project, and then my business, Wider Stand Consulting, that's generating income for them. Awesome. What we do in Wider Stand, if I can do a quick little blurb. Yeah. We, uh, provide anti online anti-racism and consulting services for libraries, for nonprofits, and for congregations. We've got complete training suites that people can very inexpensively get a one-year license to do anti-racism training for their institution. Whether it's a library, a nonprofit, or a congregation, that's who we we focus on and have um, resources developed for. Ah, so cool. Yeah. So yeah, I'll link all that stuff. Thank you. Um, so is there anything else that you, uh, I know this, there's so much that we could talk about at this, but I think this is a great start. I love talking yeah. with you, Jesse. This was a super conversation. Thanks so much for asking me. Thanks. Yeah. And I actually already would love to talk to you again about race and religion, because I don't know, I'm not hundred percent sure where you stand on religion, but I don't, and I'm not sure if we've ever talked in person about where I stand on religion, uh -huh. um, and my views on, on religion, especially as it impacts like race and stuff like that. So yeah. I think that would be. Pretty oh, cool conversation. I teach a class called Voodoo Muslim Church Black Religion. I teach a class called Prayer in the Civil Rights Movement. And this fall, for the first time, I'll be teaching a class called God Past Puzzle Present. Anytime you want to talk about that stuff, let me know. We can do it again. Oh, sweet. That'd be fantastic. Yeah, that'd be great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. This was super good. You bet. Super respect for you and all you're doing. Thanks so much for inviting me on your show. Thanks. All right, man. I'll see you tomorrow. Right. Yep. See you. Okay. Later. Bye -bye.